mindfulness mode. Be willing to just try something and it's okay if it doesn't work. Hey, Mindful Tribe, welcome to the show once again. I'm here today with a best-selling author. He's a celebrity ghostwriter, he's a high-ticket affiliate marketer, and he lives in a tropical island in the South Pacific. So I'm really excited to introduce you to my guest and to learn more about him. His name is Jonathan Green. Jonathan Green, welcome to the show. Are you in mindfulness mode today, Jonathan? Always trying. You know, it's like sometimes there's distractions in life and you try and live in the moment. And sometimes there's distractions from earlier in the day and sometimes they're actually, oh, what am I going to do tomorrow? But I think it's, for me at least, it's a continual journey to try and stay in the moment with what I'm doing right now. Right. Well, it sounds like it would be easier to be in mindfulness mode on a South Pacific island. Is that true? Is it pretty easy to stay mindful where you are? Sometimes when I'm with the kids on the beach, I can be really in the zone, but sometimes I'm like thinking about a project or I get a message from one of my clients and it's a little bit distracting, but there, for me, it's always been important to connect with nature. Like I've traveled around the world a lot, trying to see a waterfall in every country. That's something that always excites me, especially when I was younger. And when I'm in those moments in nature, I find it much easier to be mindful in nature than in a big city. We sometimes don't realize, like I've lived in London, I've spent a lot of time in New York and I grew up in Los Angeles and they're so loud. Yeah, and yeah. when you're on the beach or if you've ever been on a cruise and you look up, you go, where do all these stars come from? There are yeah. so many stars that we don't see. We always talk about different types of pollution, but light and noise pollution affect us all the time. And we go into these quiet places in the woods or on a vacation or something, go, this is what silence sounds like? It's so surprising and those are like the really magical moments when you can hear the actual world that's why I like going to the beach at least the ocean is louder than everyone else and so I'm hearing the world a little bit so that's why I think nature is a big part of my life I write all of my books outside I don't think um I can write I was I'm working on a book today and it was really windy outside so I can't dictate like I normally do and I was like, oh, I'll just have to wait till tomorrow. I didn't even think about dictating inside because this room is great when I'm on the computer, but the thought of walking around, then it suddenly seems too small. Ah, uh -huh. so you're right outside. That's very interesting. And, you know, I'm the same way. Nature inspires me as well. What does mindfulness mean to you? You've kind of explained a lot of it to us already, but can you make it succinct as to what it truly means to you? me mindfulness means you're thinking about what you're doing right now you're not yeah. thinking about what happened before or what's going to happen next right yeah that's a good good point and uh yeah i agree with that so so tell us about you you have written 300 plus best-selling books is that right yeah i started writing when I was young, I wrote books, even as young as like five or six years old, I have this book. I can't remember exactly what it's called, but it was about a frog that mm -hmm. I wrote and drew pictures for. I think I was five or six years old and it was in a contest and I got a sticker. I don't know if I won. I don't remember being that young that well, Yeah. but I've always been interested in writing. I never really thought of it as a profession until my thirties. Mm -hmm. So I did my master's and finished that at 29. And someone reached out to me about my dissertation, this company that publishes dissertations, like, oh, we'd like to publish your dissertation. I don't know what happened with it. I have never seen a dollar from it, but I was like, oh, people want to read my dissertation. Maybe other things are interesting. And my blog became really, really popular. And from there, someone reached out to me and said, would you do a co-write with us, a really large company that already had a successful project? So I said, okay. And I was really excited. And it kind of showed me the whole world of writing with other people and putting books out there and seeing that you can actually make money from a book, which I'd never realized. And 
from there, I just found a lots of different projects. And I always come back to writing because it's my unique skill set. It's the thing that I can do better than many other people. And it's not that I'm a great writer. It's that mm -hmm. I'm a consistent writer, fast writer. My career kind of exploded around 2015 or 2016 when a friend of a friend called me and said, hey, we hired a writer for a massive project. The book they turned in is terrible. It launches. We have dozens of partners promoting the book on Monday. It's in four days. Can you write a replacement book? And I said, well, you're going to pay extra for the emergency. The book became a massive success. It did over a million dollars in sales. Obviously, I wish I'd asked for a percentage instead of a flat fee. Learned, learned that lesson afterwards. But that kind of showed people what I'm capable of. And I became um, the go-to person for a couple of big brands for like emergency projects or last minute projects where they just want something done right. Wow. That must be really something writing a book that quickly. Would you just have to spend like almost what, 16, 18 hours a day or something? Yeah, that was back when I was writing books by hand. That was a book in the medical space. So I had to do a lot of research. Um, for every claim you make in a book like that, you need to find two studies for it. So there's a ton of research going on on one of my monitors and the other monitor I'm writing and planning it all out and kind of following their guidelines for, and it's for two partners. And one of them says, we want the book 25,000 words. And the other one says 35,000 words. I'm like, guys, make talk to each other because I don't want to guess. Obviously, if you want my vote, it's 25. And back then i can't do it as much anymore but um when i'm full was full steam ahead i could write twenty thousand words a day typing uh, i've been doing this a long time and broke as i've broken into my 40s my body like i get all these injuries if i'm on the computer problems my eyes problems my arms my back hurts my one of my fingers hurts so i don't write on the computer as much i do it all by dictation so, and that's so much faster i can do twenty thousand words in about two hours oh wow in two hours. That's incredible. And then you have it transcribed, I assume. Yes, it goes through a transcription process. I use a transcription software. Then I have one of the people on my team to go through and clean it up, yeah. which is the cheapest way of doing it. And it's the fastest way as well. So even if they're behind schedule, I have something workable from the beginning that I can work from. And then most of what I do is cleaning it up. But this is my same process with a client. I interview someone basically in the order of the outline I have designed for the book in my head. And almost everything they say gets transcribed, cleaned up, and that becomes 80% of the content in the book. So do you write fiction and nonfiction? I've dabbled in fiction. I outlined a series of books and I wrote half of the first book, but I just have never had the time. I've always been so busy and built such a reputation in the nonfiction space. But I use a lot of fiction influences when I write my books. I'm very interested in the monomyth, you know, the book by Joseph Campbell, um, The Man with a Thousand Faces, which is about yes. how every story kind of follows the same beat. So I'm really interested in the hero's journey. And that's a lot of how I structured my nonfiction books. And it's why they do well. Because a lot of people, and I'm sure you've noticed this, when they write their own book, the information is good, but it's so boring. Yeah. As a kid, I was always interested in the little box about the farmer and the experience with this chicken, like the breakout box that was in blue or orange. And I said, I want my books to have a lot of that. That's really the interesting part. So having a journey of the main character because nobody reads biographies of non-famous people. Right. So if you just write your own biography, no one's interested. But if you make it a story, you write it in a specific way and you kind of sneak in the education part, then people can really get pulled into the story and become a fan of yours. I see. I see. Someone that I recently interviewed uh, had written a new best-selling book and, and I said, well, tell me about that process. And she said, well, if you want to write a book, get a ghostwriter. And I hadn't heard people really say that before that much. So do you recommend that? I mean, you are a ghostwriter, so I'm assuming you probably do. 
Yeah, some people have a misunderstanding of what a ghostwriter does. Okay. Um, so every once in a while, a client will come to me and say, here's a link to my blog. Here's a bunch of articles I've written on LinkedIn. Go turn this into a book. Mm -hmm. I don't do that. What I do is I interview you for six to eight hours. It takes me six to eight hours of time with someone to create a book over the course of one to two months. And I ask questions that are interesting to me. So I'm always chasing the interesting. So if someone's talking about something really boring, I'll change the subject and go in a different direction. So if I'm bored, I know the reader will be bored. Right. So what I don't do is create the entire story whole cloth and then say, here's the book, memorize the stories I put in. I don't do that. What I do is elicit the stories from you and I do jazz them up. A lot of people when they're being interviewed or going through these questions, they tell the story in a very factual way and they get caught up in the series of events. What's the chronological order? That's not very important to me. If I get two events out of order and they're like two weeks apart, that doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. I know for a fact in my, and almost every book I've written about myself, I'm sure I got something out of order. When I think back on the events, I go, which one, which happened first? I can't remember what happened on Tuesday and Thursday the same week 12 years ago. That's really hard. So that's okay. A lot of people worry about that. The reader is interested in the journey, the emotional journey. It's not so much about where Harry Potter was born or where he finishes, right? We don't care about his physical location. We care about him learning to believe in himself, overcoming the disbelief from his family and realizing he's capable of something. That's the exciting part, right? The emotional journey. So that's what I look for when I'm interviewing someone. So as a ghostwriter, my job is to take your story, find the best version of you, the best facet of you that's a diamond. I could interview you 10 times and talk about 10 different subjects and reveal 10 different facets of your personality. So as I'm going through the process, I look for the part, I go, this is really interesting. And when I find that, I build the entire story around it. And it can be very challenging for someone to talk about themselves because to make a book interesting, you have to be vulnerable. And that can be very, very hard. So I come in and ask certain questions. My big, my flagship question is, what's the worst thing that's ever happened to you that you're okay putting in the book and the whole world finding out about? And that begins the journey of vulnerability. And that's a hard thing to ask yourself. And sometimes people say something, oh, wait, I don't want to use that. And I go, no problem. It's not going in because obviously we're working together. But that process and understanding the structure of a book, it's just something most people don't do. It's not really a good investment of your time to spend like hundreds of hours mastering the craft of writing a book to write one book and then never do it again. Mm -hmm. So you bring in someone like me, you can take your stories and jazz them up and make them more interesting, create the emotional journey. It's still your story. Most clients, after they read the book, they go, well, it looks like you didn't do anything. I'm like, that's the point. You should read the book and think you wrote the whole thing on your own. That's what I'm really trying to create. And that's what a good ghostwriter does. And I'm sure there are ghostwriters, maybe the ones who work with political candidates who don't get that much time with the person. I don't know how someone writes. I know some politicians have like a 500 page book. I don't know how someone does that. That's a massive ordeal. I go for books that someone, a reader can read in a couple of weeks because most people, if a book's too long, they don't finish it. No. So I'm very strategic with what I create and always thinking about what's the rest of the journey? What do you want someone to do after they read your book? So I'm very interested in uh, some of the work you do for celebrities. Do they always have to reveal that the book is written by a ghostwriter? No, never. That's what they pay for. So my silence is for sale. They're purchasing my silence. Most of them have an NDA or something in the contract. Every once in a while, and I have three or four books where the person wants access to my audience. I have a large following and they'll say, oh, put your name on it as well. And we do that. So it becomes a co-write. But almost every book by a celebrity or by a politician, they didn't write. Yeah, that's what I wondered. And I'm interested in this book about uh, Prince Harry. So why do you think that he revealed that it was written by a ghostwriter? 
Oh, I would, I think he put some stuff in that book that he probably, he definitely put a lot of stuff in that he shouldn't have. Yes. And it's a way of shifting the blame. So oh. if I was his ghostwriter, and I wish I was, I'd be like, hey, for an additional fee, I'll tell him when I put that stuff in about all of your intimate experiences and you told me not to. I would oh, like, I would put a fee in for that. I think that's what he's doing is like, hey, I told you that in confidence. Why'd you put that in the book? As though he didn't read the final draft. It's a way of creating like a barrier. I think that's what's happening there. And again, mo like as a ghostwriter, you decide what you're okay and not okay with. Also, if I was that ghostwriter, you know, if you get revealed as, oh, Jonathan wrote my book, tons of people are coming your way. Like you're going to get a bunch more clients. That's great PR. So sure. there's a lot of upside for both of them, but that's my guess. And it, that couldn't be the, that might not be the real reason, but that's my best guess. So do you do a lot of reading as well as writing? Yeah, I read about a book a day. I'm really a voracious reader. I read all fiction. I read everything in the science fiction genre, some fantasies, some thrillers. And I always look for pulling that part of the journey into my books because if I only read business books and I'll write business books that sound like business books. So I'm really, I don't read almost any business books. I very rarely read anything in that space, maybe one or two a year, whereas I'm reading hundreds of science fiction. Oh, I see. So one of the things you do is you help people to believe that they don't have to work for a boss in a traditional job. Is that right? Yes, that's my core belief. Yeah. And how do you help people uh, create that belief? How do you p help people move over the hump? So for most people, and I talk about <clears throat> this in my free book, Fire Boss, free mm -hmm. on Amazon, is this process, the three-step process that I believe in. The first step is looking at everything you possess and to see what's the most leverageable asset, whether it's time, a relationship, a skill, a tool, a resource. For example, maybe you have an empty garage and you can rent out the garage during the day. Maybe you have a car you don't use, you can rent it out on tour on one of those platforms. There's all these assets. And I look at that way, it could be a relationship. One of my friends in Norway has a really good relationship with the hotel and he can get a room at the hotel at cost anytime he wants or conference room at cost. That's a really valuable resource that you can connect people say, oh, I can get you a conference room here. The first time you use it, it's a cost, massive value. And it's something he can use to build up his business. So there's a lot of things people have we don't think are valuable that we think, oh, nobody would ever pay for this or nobody would be interested in this. And the first thing I teach people is that whatever your boss is paying you is less than your worth. Every business is running for profit. If you paid every worker at your company exactly the amount of money they generated, your company would either break even or lose money. And companies don't do that. Mm -hmm. So the, if your company is profitable, that's a sign that everyone is getting paid less than they're worth. And that's normal because the company is taking on an amount of risk. If I fail this month and don't bring in enough money, my employees still get paid. I'm the one who takes the hit. So there's the risk and the reward at the top. And that's the company or the boss of any business. So I first thing I say is look at everything you have, skills, assets, resources, tools. Maybe you own three bicycles because you thought you'd be a bike rider and you gave up. That's something you maybe you could rent them out and start um, like doing tours. There's a lot of things you can do. So I say, look at that. And the first thing you want to do is replace your income. So first I say, phase one is generate 10% more than you make. Most people in America are about 10% in debt or spend about 10% more than they make. So if you can boost your income by 10%, that removes the stress. Now your debt is not increasing, you're at break even, and everything past that starts to push the debt down and give you a little more breathing room. And eventually you want to get to the point where you can replace your income, leave that job behind. So even if you're doing something that's active, you're working eight hours a day on your new job, the cool thing is when you're the boss and you want to make more money, you can give yourself a raise. 
most people who are independent contractors raise their prices 50 25% 50% or 100% every time my very first client in february of 2010 was paying me $200 a month the next client was 500 the next was 1000 and the next was 2000 and then after that it was 3 2 and 3000 for a while and then i jumped to 5 you can't do that when you're employed. Can you imagine going into your boss and saying, hey, I was thinking you should double my salary. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, I'm thinking you should pack your clothes and leave. It sounds so insane as an employee, but as a business owner, like you're not even blinking because you're, yeah, of course I would do that. Um, I've just been thinking about raising the rates on one of the things I do right now. I was like, oh, you know what it look right now? I'm not as excited to do it at this price, but if I raise the price again, I'll be super excited every time a client comes in for, for this project. So that's what you can do. And the goal is to get to where your active work is four hours a day, then two hours a day. And the rest of the day you spend building on passive revenue streams. For example, let's say you decide to master Instagram. You have clients, you're doing Instagram for them eight hours a day. You raise your prices, you double the price. You only have to work four hours a day to make the same amount of money. Now you can then be someone who works 20 hours a week and the rest of the time relaxes, or you can spend those other four hours building your Instagram account. And then as you get better with clients, you raise your prices again. And now you're working two hours a day for them. Guaranteed income that gives you a sense of security, six hours a day on yourself. And this applies to anything, no matter what you're doing, whether it's an online business or it's an offline business, something in your community. Very interesting. Well, I know that you are a high ticket affiliate marketer. Can you tell us what that looks like? What, what that's all about? Sure. So I discovered about three or four years ago that my audience loves to listen to me, but doesn't love to buy products from me. So they would rather my job as an affiliate is to use my expertise to screen out the things that don't work. So I get pitched 10 to 20 products a week. 90% of them I, I can tell right away don't work. So with my level of expertise and my relationships in my market, I can find out what the person's personality is, if other people have said bad things about them, or if they don't treat their customers right, if they don't honor their refund policy, um, if they released products in the past that were kind of weird. I also can look at the logic of the product and go, oh, I can tell there's something wrong here. There's a component missing, or this doesn't sound like it would work to me. So I screen those out. So my job is to use my expertise to protect my audience from things that would never work. So then I put in front of them anywhere from 10 to 20 things a year. And I say, don't buy all of them. One thing this year will seem right for you. Buy that. I always make sure there's a 30 to 60 day refund policy and they have time to try it out, time to go through it and time to see if it works. Those are the really important things for me. I get put stuff, people reach to me sometimes and say, Jonathan, what about a crypto product or an investment product or real estate or um, foreign exchange or investing in gold and silver? I don't know anything about those. I'm not enough of an expert at that to give someone advice. So for me, it would be unethical to give, to, if you put two crypto courses in front of me, I could, and one was good and one was bad, I wouldn't be able to tell. Mm -hmm. I lack that expertise. So anything I lack the expertise, I don't talk about. What falls into my expertise, I understand how to make money online. I understand how those systems work. And I can tell if there's something in the system that go, wait, something doesn't seem right here. So that's really what I do. And so I bring these projects to my audience to say, this works. It's this kind of thing. If this is the type of thing you want to do. Some people in my audience, they want to start a white label company. Some people want to sell other people's products on Amazon. Some people just want to do local services. They want to do SEO and social media services for restaurants in their area. That's fine. I don't do all of those things, but I'll find you the best version of that. So I'll find you the best Facebook ads course that's out there and bring that to you. I'm not going to show you three Facebook ads courses this year, right? That doesn't make any sense. If you want to learn Twitter, great. I'll, I don't do a lot with Twitter, but this is an example. I'll bring you the best Twitter course, the best expert. 
And I always make sure that there's a Q&A component. So you can ask them your questions to see if, oh, this is something I want to do or this is something I don't want to do. So that's really my approach to high-ticket affiliate marketing is that I look for products that are an A to Z. Like I don't want to sell a traffic product. I want to sell an entire business. So if you spend $1,000, $2,000, $3,000, you don't have to buy anything else. And that's kind of why I don't like investing programs. Like if you buy a course on real estate, you then have to put money into real estate. If you buy a course on crypto, you have to put money into crypto. So I don't like things like that where have a massive downside. If you buy a course that I recommend for $2,000 and it doesn't work, you're out $2,000. That stinks, mm -hmm. but that the risk is finite. Whereas if you, how many people in crypto in the last couple of years have lost hundreds of thousands of dollars, their kids' savings, all of that stuff. I don't ever want that on me. So I, one of the lessons I learned, I was writing a book where someone invested in, interviewed 10 real estate billionaires. And one of them said, for every deal, do not look at the upside, look at the downside. This is why you always hear about someone who did one bad real estate deal, killed them because they didn't look at the downside. They got so excited. Mm -hmm. So that's really my approach to what I put in front of my audience. Like, I can't put anything in front of them that has a massive downside risk. As a real estate, you have to put money in and there's a lot of complicated loans or how you're going to get money, hard money, soft money, all of those things. You can get in a really tough situation on your first deal. Whereas if you're building a website or starting a blog, what are you investing? $20, right? You're not, it's not a massive investment. So that's a lot of what I look at when I bring things in front of people. And the only thing that I'll show someone that has an, a backup investment is like if they're going to start doing paid ads and I look for programs that let you start spending 10 or $20 a day. So it's still really low risk where you can go, okay, I'll test at this amount. And only if it's working, then I'll go up. So it's a lot more controlled. Sometimes there's a system like, oh, you got to start spending five or $10,000 a month. And like, yeah, I'm not promoting that. It's too high risk. So that's really a lot of my decision-making calculus as I've been doing this longer and longer is risk-based. That's really interesting, Jonathan. I want to uh, transition and, and talk to you a little bit about your, your personal life and how you moved to the Philippines. You met a woman. Um, what did all of that teach you about mindfulness? So... My wife grew up in a way that people in the West don't understand, right? She's had experiences. She grew up tough. Mm -hmm. My wife has fought an animal to the death. An animal's trying to kill her. She killed it to survive when she was about six years old. That sounds insane to people in America, right? Yeah. One of her siblings, one of her siblings died when a snake fell through the roof into her crib. Doesn't sound real. My wife didn't mention that to me until we'd been together for two years. She was like, oh, is that a weird story that happens all the time over here? So her perspective is um, from a place of survival. We come from a land of abundance. Mm -hmm. America, the reason people love to America, America is one of the few one of the countries where the poor people are fat. Like that's how you know you come from a land of abundance. You don't have that here. Where here the average living wage, the average salary is $100 a month. And it's a very different world. People still catch their own food a lot. We live on the beach. We always see people catching fish and bringing them in. My wife buys fish that someone caught that day all the time. And they're only selling like 20 fish that day, right? It's a really that type of economy. And so when you come from that world, you have a very mindful experience because you're living in the moment because you have no other choice. So when we first got together, I said, well, what are your dreams? And she said, well, I would love for my kids to never starve and to have air conditioning. And I was like, I can do that. I was like, I could do those two dreams, like amazing. Yeah. So. That's such a different perspective, right? Like, it's like, oh, I never want my kids to say, mommy, I'm hungry and I can't feed them. Something that would never, doesn't cross our minds very often. And then the second one is like, you know, most houses in America have central air conditioning. 
she's never seen that. We've never had that. Like we buildings here don't have that, but we've always had air conditioning. Our house right now has like seven air conditioners in it. It's so abundant. And that's really a way of living in the moment. So a lot of what I've learned is from her, from how she approaches life, where it's one day at a time. What am I going to do today? What's happening today? And we're not perfect about it. There's still, we always think about what are we doing next month? What's happening with the kids' schools? What's our projection? How are the kids going to grow up? Those things you can't avoid, but we do live in a very, like, much closer to the earth way. So a lot of that comes from her. And we come from two very different worlds and she has a much tougher mindset than me. And so it's really shown we've had some experiences where, you know, most of the time I lead the family, but we've been in situations where she takes total leadership and she saved our family. Wow. I know that you have a story about being fired during a blizzard. That's way back in another life. It sounds like, tell us about that. So I got my master's in applied linguistics at 29 from a great university in London with merit. So that's the same as with honors in America. So it's not the highest level, it's the second highest level. But from there, I had a plan to get a really good job in America. Most people, they go back to their old job asking for a dollar, two hour, dollars an hour raise. I said, I don't want that. So I got my dream job at 29, running a $1.5 million program at one of the top 20 universities in America. And the first day I hated it. I am not good at slow rolling or politics. So example of slow rolling is they said, Jonathan, here's a project that should take you six months. I was finished in 30 minutes and I almost started crying. I said, I don't know how to make this do six months. I don't have that skill. And that's a skill. That's a government worker, large company skill to turn 30 minute task into six months. I can't even imagine it, but that was that. Was that. And the second thing was politics. Um, they'd offered my job to someone else who worked there and she turned it down. And she came in one day and was like, how come you got a new chair? Now, when I got the job, the office had no chair. So I didn't go from one chair to new chair. I went from no chair to one chair. And it was a mat. It was a whole thing. Then when she found out I got a mouse for my computer because it was a laptop and I'd ask for a mouse because using your finger all day is insane. Eight hours a day for a full-time job. And I got a $10 mouse, whole second thing. And I was like, this world is terrible. This is, I thought this was my dream job. And I was counting how long do I have to stay here till I pay off my student loan? I was thinking that the first week of the job. And so that's when you know it's a bad job. But I had every plan to stick it out. From that job, I took the you know employment letter to the bank and I was able to buy, I bought a new car and I rented an apartment. And then Monday I came into work and they were like, hey, we're gonna, we're probably gonna fire you. So they said, we're launching an investigation, give us your keys. And basically they'd found out, I, they're like, we found out you wrote a book. I said, how many people who, work at universities have written a book. And I asked also when they hired me, I asked that specific question because I'd written a book about dating that was pretty well known in the dating world. And they were like, basically I could have fought them. I could have taken them to court and I would have absolutely won because I specifically asked that when they hired me, does, are you allowed to write books or is that considered competing employment, right? A non-compete. I asked mm -hmm. that specifically and they said, no, writing books is fine for us. Let's do that. So to fire me for that, obviously they were just looking for a reason to get rid of me. And it was the best thing that happened the week they fired me. So I went to, I bought, um, I bought a convertible and then it was a blizzard driving to work. I go, I'm such a good employee. I'm driving to work in my convertible. And then when they tell me I got to go back home, I'm driving back going, don't crash, don't crash. It's too ironic. It's too ironic. Don't crash. It's too ironic. Like, and I was thinking, I don't want anyone to ever have this much power over me again. Because they have, your boss has power over not just how much money you make, but over where you live, what your kids eat, where your kids go to school 
and really your entire life. And I've had friends, a friend I met shortly after that, he was working at one of the largest companies in America, got downsized because they said, oh, we, have, we didn't hit our numbers. We're firing one out of 10 people. We're doing a decimation. One in 10 of you is gone. And he went from a four bedroom, beautiful house, $200,000 cars to a studio apartment with a black mold problem that got his wife sick. And I saw that, realized that it doesn't matter where you work. If you get done, you get done. And sometimes you're, especially when you're really high up, you're unhirable because there's only 10 companies. Maybe they can hire someone with your skill set and those positions don't come up very often. So you can actually get trapped by your own skill set. So as I was driving home, I said, I never want someone to be able to do this to me ever again. The advantage was that if I'd been fired a week later, I would have been in a different healthcare program. But at that point, there's this program called COBRA, which is a health insurance you get when you leave a company. I got it at uh, 70% off because Obama had, Obama had passed some program that said, oh, everyone who does COBRA gets a discount. And that program was ending a week later. So if mm -hmm. they waited a week later, I had to pay full price, which I couldn't have afforded. And I had a health incident that year where I used that insurance. And I think it helped. Hopefully, I don't know, because now you hear stuff about insurance. It's like, I don't know, maybe it was even worse. But that was like the fortuitous moment. And within about three months, I was making my old salary again. And within a year, I was making more than the woman who fired me. Wow. And, and did you turn to writing immediately then? Is that how you were making the money right away? No. At the time, I was doing a lot of local services. So I bought a course about how to sell local online businesses to local online services businesses. So I was doing a lot of SEO and video marketing for companies around town. And I got a just started closing clients really quickly. I put an ad on Craigslist, got my first client within four days and started getting one or two clients every couple of weeks. And it was just really growing. And that was my foundational business. My blog, which was about my dating life, just was really, really famous. And it wasn't mm -hmm. meant to be. I When I started my blog, I didn't know other people could see it. Mm -hmm. I started my blog as a diary. I go, I'll just do a diary online. No one will ever see this. And it was all about my dating misadventures, how really silly things would happen to me dating. And then one day it was the number one Google search result for the phrase, get a girlfriend, because it was about my journey to try and get a girlfriend. And I didn't realize how you know big that would make me. And so a publisher called me maybe three months or four months after I was fired, or maybe it was a year, not great at timelines, maybe it was even a year later, but they called me and said, hey, would you write a book for us? And this was a direct response company. So they were the book is $67, not like $3. And I make $1.55 every single time a copy of the book sells because it's sold by affiliates. And I've since then, I know I've made over $100,000 in royalties from that book, which was like life changing. That's unbelievable to me because it took me about 30 hours. I can't believe, like when I saw that, I go, wow, this is really possible. So that brought me into the world of creating products, writing books for other people. And a lot of other people began to reach out to me. I've worked with some of the biggest brands in direct response from them reaching out to me when I was creating products for a lot of people. I've moved a lot more into writing books in the second half of my career. But for the first six years, I was working with some really, really well-known people making products that were doing millions of dollars every single time. Wow, that's really, really fascinating. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you a question about bullying because I've worked in the bullying space for a long time. Do you have a story about bullying where mindfulness would have made a difference? I can tell you a story about bullying and I don't know if mindfulness would have made a difference. Maybe you can help me. So I was working for a large computer company selling computers on the phone. If you guess who it is, you probably know. And I was, I'm going to say 24, I think I was 24. And I was doing it on the floor, doing phone sales and doing really well. I thought doing well, making five or $6,000 a month, which is crazy money in early 20s. 
And then I had someone on my team, right? You sit in, you have like a manager and there's 10 or 20 of you on a team. And someone on my team was like my bully. And one day, like I was on a call with a customer and he put me in a headlock and I didn't know what to do. And I was like, I've never seen a movie about an adult bully, right? There's no training for that. And then I said, wait a minute. It's illegal. I said, that's illegal when you're an adult. You're not allowed to rough up other people. No. So I told my manager, we were an elite team. So we were... I was doing so well, they'd move me to the special team. So he was obviously a really good salesman too. I never saw him again. I don't think they fired him. I'm pretty sure they just moved him to another team. And either way, it went away. I don't care. Like I don't need to ruin someone's life, but just I never saw him again. So that's my most recent experience with bullying. But certainly when I was a child, I dealt with a lot of bullying and I really uh, struggled with it because... There's a lot of missing education for children. We don't really teach children how to socialize. It's kind of like get on the playground and figure it out. Yes. So right. I didn't understand um, friendship. I, I had no idea how to make friends until I was 17. When I was 17, one of my friends had an older brother named Nathan Ells. And Nathan changed my life. He doesn't know this. I talk about him all the time because he's my hero. Nathan was the first person I met who was popular and nice. He was so cool. He was in a cool band, listened to cool music, wore cool clothes. He was out of high school, but he was, so he was an older brother. And I just would study him. We would go out to like one of those uh, clubs that plays like teenage music. And I would watch how he treated people. And he would always say to me, wow, Jonathan, is that a new sweatshirt? I love it. And I was like, he's seen the sweatshirt six times. So at first I thought it was a trick. And then I realized he just does that. And I said, that's the kind of person I want to be. So I really studied him and it changed my life. I learned how to make friends. I became a really good friend with his younger brother. We had amazing adventures traveling to see DJs all over America and did all these amazing things came out of my life from that moment of realizing that it's learnable. I think that one of the missing components is that friendship is a skill. You can get better at friendship, just like you can get better at dating. That's how I got better at dating 10 years later and understanding, oh, this is what people like and don't like. I was just guessing for so long and it's really hard. It's really hard to guess how to communicate with people. I many times said one sentence wrong and the person never speaks to me again. More as a child, not as much recently, but that's happened. There's these moments and you're trying to figure out yourself. And we've created an environment in America where school is very stressful. Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of things. My kids don't experience. My kids have no comprehension of bullying. They go to a smaller school and it doesn't really happen here. Mm -hmm. It's just not part of the culture. And also here, there's not the culture of teenagers hating their parents. So that's something my wife sees in a movie. She goes, do people really do that? So there's, it turned, that's how you know, oh, it's not mandatory. It's something we've created. It's a construction. So a lot of my perspective on bullying comes from, we don't understand communication. We've taken away a lot of the most important parts of education. We've taken away music. We've taken away home ec. We've taken away shop. We've taken away certifications. In the sixties, you could go to high school and graduate a mechanic or graduate a plumber. Yes. Those are great professions. You're your own boss. You make serious money and you can work when you want or not when you want. Those are amazing skills. And now like it's harder and harder to get as professions and we need more and more of them because population is growing. So that's right. I think in the same way, a lot of interpersonal education is really missing. And I went through a lot of bad experiences as a child. I went through five or six therapists and counselors and none of them could help me. And a lot of what they told me was nonsense. That's the honest truth. Here's what I learned from Nathan. Start every conversation with a compliment and always focus on the positive and just be nice to everyone. And that's it. Like, I was like, what? That's all. That's it. And, he's, and he meant it. 
that's the thing, like mean it and just say something nice and mean it. And that's really, that changed my life. Like just treating people that way. go, oh, if I just treat everyone the way I wish they would treat me over a little bit of time, it will turn around. And I've had people meet me and go, wow, you must've been so popular as a child because I project that. It's like, no, I wish I learned it as a learned skill, but just knowing you can learn, it can change a kid's life to go, wait, I can get better at friends. That's amazing. Sometimes it's like one small piece of information. Yeah, that, that's an awesome story. Wow. That's very impressive because it's so true. But yet there are a lot of people in the world that struggle with that for sure for their whole life. Yeah. Yeah. We end up, we have like so much of our culture, especially now because you live more and more online. It's very easy to miss socialize online yeah. because you have these relationships with people you play a video game with or talk to on a social media platform, but they're not real friends. I've always hated that Facebook calls the people you know on their friends. Mm -hmm. This is not true. When I first joined, I was, I was removing people all the time. I was like, we're not friends anymore. <laughs> so we're not, you're not there. I was like only active friends. I haven't talked to you in three years. You're out, right? Purges, all that stuff. Nobody else does that, right? Everyone wants as many as they have can have, right? Now you can call them followers instead of friends, which is like, great. I got downgraded, but that's created this idea that someone, you know, on Facebook is a friend and it's not true. A friend is someone who, if you're in trouble, they'll show up. If you call them and say, hey, my house just burned down, they go, come over. That's a much smaller list. And I know there are some people that have a lot of friends or some people that have few friends deep and you can be in either camp, that's fine. But a friend is someone that like you actually care about. And I read this article that was like, um, a friend is someone who like, if you get in a fight, they'll jump in with you. If they get in a fight, you'll jump in. And now when I was 20, I was much more ready to do that. And that kind of, I was like, I also was like, when I would drive to festivals and concerts, I was like, I don't want anyone in the car that if something happens, I'm embarrassed we died together. Like this, I know this is a weird way of thinking, but that's kind of one of the things I thought about. I got, I want people in the car that if something terrible happens, I'm glad it ended this way because this is who I want to be there. And that really affected my friendship decisions. And I ended up making friends with people that like way outside my background and race and education, all that stuff doesn't matter because like this person is there for you when things are bad. Because if there's one thing we know is that tragedy is going to happen. Everyone has something bad happen to them, whether it's a car accident or a financial pushback or a divorce or getting sick or something bad happens, it's going to happen. And you want to be surrounded by people who when something bad happens, that's who you want there. They're the kind of friend, you know, they say a friend in need is a friend in need. There's someone who's there when the things are bad. That's really how you kind of carve out your true friends. And none of that is stuff we learn when we're kids in high school. We don't really learn what friendship means and what type of people we want to be friends with. We often chase friendship with the people that would be the worst friends you can imagine. That when things go bad, they're the first ones out of there. And we think, oh, that's the most popular kid. Like I followed what happened to all the people from my high school. Glad it wasn't popular. Like it did not, the popular kids, it didn't go as well for them. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. As we move forward in the interview, Jonathan, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. So just 30 second answers are perfect. First one is this, who is one person who has been a powerful mindfulness influence in your life? I would say for me, um, Eckhart Tolle, I've read some of his books, listened to some of his audio books. And that was the first time I encountered the idea of living in the moment. I know he uses lots of different names, right? It's like you're living in the pain body and he has all these different terms, ways of talking about it. But that was the first time I encountered this idea of living in the right now. Yeah, yeah. My second question is about emotions. And how have your emotions changed or how you, do you deal with your emotions differently as a result of mindfulness? 
So I read in my late 20s, another book, I can't remember which book this was, that emotions are just thoughts, that emotions don't, I've always thought emotions controlled us until that moment. We can control our emotions. And an example is if you're really mad about something and then you go watch a movie and during the movie, you forget that you're mad. That's how you know it's not that powerful. So we have the ability to push and control our emotions. So that has really changed me realizing that I can choose. So when I was younger, I really dealt with depression. It was very powerful in my life. And the way I conquered my depression is that whenever I'm depressed, I tell someone, whoever's nearest to me. And I used to have this great friend, Jenks. Jenks is the best person at friendship in the entire world. He's so good at friendship. I know three different companies that tried to hire him to teach friendship for them, which he's that good. And I would call him. We lived in London together. I'd call him and go, Jenks, I'm depressed today. And he would go, yes, because that means we're going to the batting cages. We're playing video games. We're having pizza. We're watching a movie. And I'm paying for everything. So he got a day out where you didn't have to pay anything. And I got a day where a really great guy made my depression disappear and doing all that stuff. And then you go back and go, I was depressed about something this morning, but I can't remember. So that's really what I learned about living in the moment. We're having so much fun in the moment. You forget what you're depressed about. That's a cool story. I really love that. Yeah. My next question is about uh, breathing. And what can you tell us about breathing and maybe how you use breathing in your life to help you get through certain challenges or how it affects your mindfulness? Yeah, I've learned a lot of different breathing techniques, doing yoga or going to the gym or like you learn that breathing technique, like breathe 10 times to calm down. So I've learned a lot of those techniques. Um, I've gotten really good at falling to sleep. When I was younger, it would take me like an hour to fall asleep. Now, when I decide to go to sleep, it's about 30 seconds. And a lot of it is slowing down how I breathe, kind of feeling my body. I used to do those drills where you like imagine your head falling asleep and your shoulders and kind of work through the body. And now it's become kind of automated for me. So we forget how important breathing is, like breathing in through the nose and out through the mouth. If you want your breath to get hotter or cooler, all of that stuff matters. And we don't think about it very much. But if you're breathing totally through your mouth and you're doing shallow breaths, then it's hard to relax. But if you go everything slows down. See how my voice just slowed down from one yeah. breath? That's not intentional. It just, it happens. And so there's such a correlation between how fast we breathe and how fast we're living. Like slower, deeper breaths help us relax. They slow down the heart rate. And that's really been effective for me when I'm really stressed out or really feeling overwhelmed. I really know how to calm down now so that I can stay in control. Is there a book that you would recommend that's related to mindfulness? Not really enough of an expert to say a specific book and say, this is the master book on mindfulness. So I don't like to recommend when I'm not sure enough. I can tell you that one of the best books that I read was um, Psycho-Cybernetics by Maxwell Maltz, which is about the idea that your brain is a computer that you can program. And just that idea was revolutionary for me. Like, wait, I can decide what I think, but I can decide what my brain does. So that really affected me. I don't know if it's specifically a mindfulness book, but it's really helped me because I often... When I was younger, I was just like, my emotions were the wind, which would hit the sail and control what I do. And I thought that was how I had to live. So it really freed me realizing that I can be in control of my emotions. Cool. Any apps you use to help with mindfulness or to help be focused and grounded? So um, I use a project management app called ClickUp to keep track of what I'm supposed to be working on and see where projects are because I suffer more from forgetfulness. So I forget what I'm working on or what I need to do. I do a lot of that. And then the other thing that really helps me is I saw this on this. I love to watch videos about the ultimate desk setup. So I'm, I watched all these videos before I built this office and they all have this um, 
scheduling tool called, I forget what it's called, it's called Analog. And it's like $200 for a box and note cards. And I was like, I can make my own of those. I don't, like, it's insane to buy that. For, to me, that's insane to buy. I know it looks beautiful. So I built my own box and I can show it to you. It's right here yeah. on my desk. Awesome. This costs, I think, a dollar. And then I have the cards from Rocketbook that are erasable. Uh-huh. And I write down um, the tasks that I need to work on. Now, I used to do write down my tasks for the day. And I met a task coach who I interviewed for my podcast. And she was like, oh, do them for the week. So now I write down all the things I want to do for the week. And it really helps me to know what to focus on and not feel stressed out about the week. So those are the, I use ClickUp for long-term planning and maybe you call it a system and some people call it an app, but it's just no cards. I just happen, I use erasable ones so I can reuse them over and over again. And it really helps me to know what I'm working on because sometimes you have that feeling of, oh, I work for two hours. What did I do? Yes. And I love being able to cross something out. Like that's what I like is crossing something out. Yeah, I do too. Wow. I have really enjoyed interviewing you. I know your website is servenomaster.com and you have a podcast called the Serve No Master Podcast. And uh, you even have a book called Serve No Master, Fire Your Boss. Where would you like Mindful Tribe to go to find more about what you do? If you Google Serve No Master, every result is me. Mm -hmm. The first a whole homepage, whether you want to find my book or my podcast or my blog, I'm always giving away books on my website. And if you go to, if you want to get a taste without spending any money, you go to Amazon, type in fire your boss. That book is free. I created that. So people get an idea of what we talked about, kind of creating roadmap to say, oh, is there something in my life I can leverage to bring in a little income without spending extra time? So that's really what I teach in that book. And that's a little bit about my journey in high school as well. Right. Well, this has been a, a fantastic time sp spent talking to you, learning about your expertise and and uh, learning about your genius, basically. And a lot of it is related to mindfulness. So I've really appreciated having you on the show, Jonathan. Any final words of advice for our listeners? Yeah, the thing I would say is that it's very easy to get caught up in thinking and planning and strategizing. Like, I'm going to get mindful. I'm going to do this. And you can't learn how to swim from a book. you got to get in the water. And in the same way, just try it try it, whether it's a breathing exercise, you don't have to do it right. Some of the exercises I tried were really silly. When I was first trying out, it was like, oh, how to get relaxed when you're out in a bar and you want to talk to someone. And there was ones where you like tap your nose like 10 times, like that's silly. <laughs> but I did it to see which ones worked. And there's one where you imagine your your nervousness and you step out of your body and you're less nervous and out of your body and you're less nervous. That really worked for me. Everyone's like, why is he moonwalking through the bar? I'm like, not nervous anymore, 20 steps back. So be willing to just try something and it's okay if it doesn't work. So many of us are afraid of doing the wrong thing. And so we spend years strategizing. I know people like, oh, I've been planning to start my online business or write my first blog post for three years. My first blog post was terrible. So was my second, so was my third. But as you write more and more, you get better. You get better at writing. That's how I got good at writing books. So whatever you want to do, whatever you want to try, just go for it. It's okay to make mistakes on the way to the top. We've had so many presidents who've lost a previous election and then they become president. That's happened like seven or eight times and nobody remembers that they ran before. And that's presidents. For everything else, how many people have run billion-dollar companies in the ground and built a new one? That's a, If they can do that, you can certainly push through whatever you're afraid of, whatever's holding you back, your fear of like, oh, how will people look at me? What will people think of me if I'm doing a breathing exercise in an elevator? Guess what? They're not going to remember, but you're going to be better. So just go for it. 
Good advice. Thank you so much for being on Mindfulness Mode, Jonathan. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. (laughs) Oh, great. All the best to you. Bye now. Bye. Hey, Mindful Tribe, thanks for listening to this exciting episode today. And uh, speaking of exciting, you know, I'm I'm working on my YouTube channel. I'm getting more and more subscribers, and I'd love you to be one of my subscribers as well. I've got clips on there. I've got full episodes on there. I'd love to hear feedback from you as to what you think about the YouTube channel and how it can be improved. Send me an email about that. I'd love to hear from you, bruce at mindfulnessmode.com. And you can go to that YouTube channel and find it directly by going to mindfulnessmode.com slash TV and uh, you'll get right in there and if you subscribe that'd be awesome and if you you know leave some comments or like some some videos that's always a big help too thank you so much for being a mindfulness mode supporter mindful tribe i really appreciate it so with that take what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm focus and happiness stay in the mode <laughs>